This time of year obviously is filled with Christmas theme and Christmas songs and so on. I'm sure that many of you have spent time at the mall or shopping centers or wherever you go, and it's always interesting to me this time of year on how people treat each other. And I, I, I'm pretty cynical. I don't know if you guys have picked up on any of that yet. Some of you that know me well, you know I'm, I'm fairly cynical. I can tend to be a little bit of a smart aleck. And, and I'm just a, yeah, amen. And so I'm just a, uh, thank you. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little cynical about the way that folks act this time of year when typically you don't see that any other time of year out of them. Maybe you've had the, the opportunity recently to pretend like you like somebody. You know what I'm talking about. Or, or maybe it's coming. You've got those family members and you're going to get together and you're going to shake hands and talk about useless things and, and pretend as if that you really like one another. You're going to smile and sit and eat food and, and talk about the food and the weather and the kids and all that kind of stuff. And, or maybe you've run into somebody else that, uh, that you haven't seen in a long time and you just have to pretend as if you really like them because it's Christmas. You know, you got to like everybody at Christmas. And, and what, what I'm afraid is true as well is that this time of year really brings that out more so than, than maybe other times. And even if it's not just interpersonally, I think that it's brought out in the way that we feel about Jesus. And we sort of pretend, and I say we in very general terms, I hope you understand what I mean. We as a society sort of pretend that we like Jesus this time of year. And whether it's we hear a Christmas song that takes us back to when we were a child or, or whatever it may be, or tonight we'll see a Christmas program from our children. And I'm afraid that it's true that many times in our society, this time of year, we simply pretend to like Jesus. Because it's socially acceptable this time of year to like Jesus. Those who have no Christmas spirit, we call it, are sort of weird this time of year, aren't they? What in the world's wrong with you? Don't you know it's Christmas? Don't you know you're supposed to pretend to like the Lord and be nice to everybody this time of year? I'm afraid that it's true, not just though in society, but often in the church, that there are many times when we simply pretend to like Jesus. We pretend like He really matters. There's a passage of Scripture this morning that I, I want to show you and prove what I think is a very unfortunate but very true point from Scripture. If you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, first book in the New Testament, second chapter. The version that I'm going to be reading from is known as the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Yours may be different. You may prefer a different translation. That's okay. Uh, but we, we'll put the words on the screen of, of this particular chapter so you can follow along if that's more helpful. This is going to be a very familiar passage of Scripture, even if you're a person who's not been in church for a long time, or even if you're a person who doesn't read the Bible, you will probably recognize lots of stuff from this particular passage. Verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. 
And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, with Mary's mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel because those who sought the, child, the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. Is it possible? Is it possible to believe or say you believe in Jesus and hate Him? Is it possible to believe or at least say you believe in Jesus and hate Him? I believe two examples from this story and some modern studies that have been done prove that it is certainly possible to at least claim that you believe in Jesus Christ and still Operate as if you hate Him. It is possible to quote-unquote believe in Jesus and to hate Him. Now, hate is a strong word. And for some, that's ruffled your feathers a little bit this morning just by me even using that term. You know, well, hold on just a second. That's pretty strong. Who are you to tell me this? But I think that when we find out what loving Jesus looks like and we realize that the opposite of love is hate and for our relationship with the Lord, the Bible makes it clear there's no in-between. It'll make sense. I want you to write down a few references. They won't be on the screen, but I'm going to turn to them and I'm going to read them to you. Write down these references and I want to show you what loving Jesus really is all about, both in his words and in the words of others that wrote about him. In John chapter 13, Jesus would say these words, verse 34, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. We get an idea here of what Jesus is talking about. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And then verse 12, John 15. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Verse 14. You are my friends... If you say nice things about me to your friends. No, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Then verse 17, this is what I command you, love one another. And he goes on to talk about lots of other things that highlight what love for Jesus is really all about. And then we flip over to 1 John. John now, an old man writing his reflections on the Lord and 1 John chapter 2, the apostle writes in verse 3, This is how we are sure that we have come to know Him. You want to know if you know Jesus Christ? Here it is. By keeping His commands. The one who says, I have come to know Him without keeping His commands, is a liar. That's pretty strong. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him is the love of God perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. James would write about this as well in the fourth chapter of his letter, James chapter 4. You're writing down the reference, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Some versions say hatred toward God. So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. And then John the Apostle would sum it up as he receives a word from the Lord in Revelation chapter 3. And he writes to a church known as the church in Laodicea. And he says in verse 15, Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. What strong words from the Lord. We get the idea that there is something to loving Jesus. There is a standard to what it means. The opposite of which is hating him, essentially. And there's no in-between. So I propose to you this morning, based upon the Scripture and based upon the example that we'll we'll see, that it is possible to claim belief in Jesus and yet not love Him. And in not loving Him, the Bible makes it clear that that is the opposite, which is hatred toward Him. So if we say we believe in Him, we must love Him. We must love others unconditionally, these verses we've seen. We must give of ourselves. We must keep ourselves from the love of the world and what it offers. And we must not ride the fence. If we say we believe in Him, we must be all in. All in. Shoving all the proverbial chips to the middle of the table, so to speak, and saying, I'm all in. There's nothing godly about a halfway commitment to the Lord Jesus. God Himself says that He hates it so much it makes him sick. But I wonder this morning, in all the churches that have gathered around, in all the folks that are attending church this morning, and and all over our country, and those who even are not, I wonder how many folks 
if we're honest with ourselves, would say, you know what, I claim belief in Jesus, but I'm not sure my life lines up with it. The story of Matthew 2 is going to give us several supporting reasons why it is possible to claim belief in Jesus and still operate as if we hate Him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-3 through 3 show us that Jesus to Herod is a threat. You'll see there on your bulletin a couple of different things you can look at. One of the reasons why it's possible to say that you believe in Jesus and yet to operate as if you hate Him is because He is a threat. Now let me give you some background on Herod. It calls Him in verse 1, King Herod, and that's what he was. This is Herod the Great, who ruled over the Jews on behalf of Rome from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, don't get confused. This is still the Herod. Jesus was not born in the year zero. Jesus was born uh, through some mix-up in calendar as they backdated things, somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C. Now, let that one simmer in your mind a little bit, how Jesus was born before Christ. But he was born between 4 and 6 B.C., so Herod is still rightfully there on the throne. He is the right guy we're talking about. Herod's role and job was to bring order to the Jews because they rebelled against Roman rule. And so what the Romans would do is they would get a sort of Jewish person to rule over them. Herod was kind of half Jewish. His family had converted and, and, and sort of nominally at least claimed allegiance to Judaism. But during this time of his rule, the Jews paid heavy taxes. They were oppressed. They were pushed down. There was extreme turmoil for them, and they did not like in any way one who claimed to be of them ruling them on behalf of a foreign power. If you know anything about the nation of Israel and their history, you know that they claimed that they were autonomous and they were sovereign, and they didn't want anyone else ruling over them, and certainly not one who claimed to be one of them and yet ruled on behalf of Rome. He did all he could, Herod did, to satisfy or at least appease the Jews. He rebuilt their temple, a glorious temple that he built for them and so they could worship their God, and yet that wasn't obviously enough. Herod was a very jealous and fearful, paranoid, anxious kind of man. Any threats to his rule were eliminated ruthlessly. He killed his brother-in-law. He had his wife and her two sons executed. And just days before his own death, he had his own son executed because he was viewed as a threat. All of this, however, did keep peace, as you can well imagine. If, if under the threat of death, uh, you're, you're going to be kept down, that's, that's what happened. You highlight the character of King Herod, you find this thirst for power. He was a control freak. And not just to where he had to have all his stuff in order. <laughs> he wasn't just OCD like some of us are in here that just had to have everything in order. He thirsted for power and more of it. He was cruel. He was merciless. He was ruthless. Everything was under his total control. He was sneaky. He was a liar. And he would stop at nothing to ensure that his place remained exactly the way that it was. That his position would not be changed. But in verse 1, we see wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly. Herod's world is about to change. They arrive unexpectedly, and events from this point spiral downward for Herod. The Magi, the wise men, were not necessarily three in number. We three kings, they're not necessarily kings either. Most likely, they're religious advisors. They're really smart guys who study the stars. In their part of the world, they would be the, the, the guys that would be the advisors to the rulers and so on and so forth. 
And part of their job was to study the stars. They were astronomers and astrologers, and they would try to figure out what's happening. And so apparently their study of the stars had led them to believe that an important ruler had been born in Jerusalem. Now at this time there were also some Jewish colonies that were spread out in the east from the time when they were dispersed and they were exiled in Babylon. And so it was quite possible that not only did they see this star, but they had heard some stories. They knew of the Jewish faith that believed in a promised Messiah. And so they're drawn to Jerusalem because they see this sign in the sky and they recognize it as a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. So they show up on the scene. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, their question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, who is Herod? King Herod. He was what? He was totally fine with the whole thing and said, hey, let's go. Where is he? He said... (laughs) He was deeply disturbed. You read that in the Bible. Does that even make sense? Deeply disturbed. That just sounds like, well, he's just sort of upset. The guy was freaking out. He was going just crazy. He lost his mind, born king of the Jews. I'll tell you who king of the Jews is. You're looking at him. And he's going crazy, as you can well imagine. He's deeply disturbed. That's, that's code for he just loses his mind. And all of Jerusalem with him. They use the words, which is interesting, born king of the Jews, not the one who is born to become king of the Jews. Talk about a threat to Herod. Here is one who is born with his title. Herod then inquires of his religious leaders. He goes to his scribes and his chief priests, and he asks them, where is it that the Messiah will be born? Well, they report to him with great detail it's going to be in Bethlehem. And they tell him the prophecy that's taking place. What's interesting is that he doesn't argue with them whatsoever. There's no argument recorded in Matthew where Herod is saying, this isn't really the Messiah. This is not the guy. There's no, this guy's not a threat to me. This, does, this doesn't line up with, with what the prophecy says. Which leads me to believe that Herod knew exactly who he was dealing with. He believed. Jesus was, in fact, on the scene as the Messiah. The natural response for him, if he knew his Jewish scripture, if he really was devout in his Jewish faith, would be to celebrate and worship the one who has come to be the king of the Jews. And yet Herod, even in his belief of who Jesus was, hated him. Herod's position was threatened as king. Herod's future was threatened. Well, his family line was to rule. His family was threatened. What would happen to all of his relatives? His leadership, his very identity were threatened by Jesus. I want to say to you this morning that just as Jesus was a threat to King Herod, he's a threat to all of us as well. Because Jesus threatens our ambitions. How? Because he takes over. He threatens our possessions. Why? Because he claims ownership. He threatens our attitudes, our motives, our worldview, our plans, our security even. Because he changes everything. He threatens certainly our pride, our self-sufficiency. He threatens our sin. Even the ones we don't like people to know about. Even the ones that are sort of our pet sins that we just like to keep around. (laughs) 
He threatens those as well. Jesus is a threat. Not only is he a threat, but it's evident that he must be king. Verse 2, it says he's born king of the Jews. You realize that Jesus will not play second, third, or fourth, or any other fiddle but the first one? He doesn't have to. He's not going to play any other role in our lives but king. That's it. He will not sit in the second, third, or fourth chair. He doesn't have to. Why? Because he created the whole thing anyway. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He doesn't need anything from us. We are doing him no favors whatsoever by allowing him to be king, which is what he already is. <laughs> he won't play any other role but king in our lives. He's a threat, but he also must be king. Some of you, <clears throat> I won't make you raise your hands because some of you may say, well, we haven't done that yet, but some of you have already decorated the Christmas tree. Some of you are scrambling and saying, well, Christmas is next week. I guess we ought to get that thing out of the attic and shake the dust off and put it up again. But some have already put up their Christmas tree, and some did it in October. You're just really excited. You know how you, you, you get the Christmas tree out, and you hang the ornaments on there, and you decorate everything, and, and everything sort of hangs on the branches. Everything hangs on the tree. And, and you, you make sure, in my house anyway, that everything's about a foot and a half up. Because we have a toddler now who likes to get the, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. He, uh, he likes that. But you, you decorate it just right, and you put it all the way that you want it to be, and, and the tree looks beautiful. And each ornament sort of adds to the beauty of the tree. If I can illustrate it this way, is the way that Jesus operates in our, in our lives. He's not an ornament that adds to the beauty of our lives as we, the trees, sort of hang out our branches and, and let Jesus sort of add some things to us. He's the tree. And we are simply the ornaments that are hung on Him and only made beautiful because He is the tree. <laughs> He's pre-lit, which is wonderful. He is the tree. And so as a result of him being that in that illustration, if it makes sense to you, he's not going to be anything but the tree. He's not going to be anything but king. You say, well, I love Jesus. Was he king of your life? Well, I don't know about that. Well, how can we then say that those two things equate? I love Jesus equals he must be king in my life. It's pretty simple. Herod had a problem with that. Born king of the Jews. Herod was not about to let anyone be king but him. Even though Herod knew he had no rightful place as king of the Jews, he was not from the line of David. He was not from the line that God had chosen to rule. And so he knows he's not the rightful king, but he's not about to let anybody take his position. You know, the Bible says for us the same is true. We can't serve two masters. Whether it's money and God or ourselves and God, we cannot serve two masters, but we try, don't we? If this is a sermon for Elm Grove Baptist Church, let me tell you what, I have absorbed it all week long. The Lord has brought to mind and to my heart so many things this week where He's not in charge, where He is not truly king in my life. So if this, this hits you between the eyes, then trust me, I take it with you. We have no rightful claim to the throne in our lives. 
just like Herod, we are not the ones who have that claim to the throne. Only Jesus does. And relegating him to any other position but king in our lives is essentially hatred for him. What's Herod's response? Herod's response to the threat, the kingship of Jesus, is to eliminate him at all costs. What does he do? The Bible says he flies into a rage. Once he finds out that he's not going to have easy access to Jesus to destroy him through the information the wise men will give him, he flies into a rage, allows his emotions to control him, and does all he can to get rid of the threat of Jesus, including murdering innocent children. He sends his soldiers. We have no idea what time of day it was, but you can imagine the scene. To rip from the arms of mothers their young babies and to kill them in front of the families and likely not to provide any proper burial, but just to kill them and leave them there. He was ruthless and he would stop at nothing to eliminate any threat to his rule and his control. Now, our response to Jesus sometimes is the exact same thing. You say, well, I haven't murdered any innocent children. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, isn't it true, and if you're honest with yourself, as I've been honest this week with myself, we go to great lengths to keep Jesus from being king in certain areas of our lives. We say that we love him, we say that we worship him, and we go to church and we do these different things, and yet we, just like Herod, sometimes go to extreme measures to be sure that we still have control of certain areas of our lives. Maybe if you would be honest, and I've made a list of things that were written really to myself, but I want to share them with you. How do you know if you're dealing with this? How do you know if you're sort of like King Herod? Well, this list was written to me. Maybe it would help you, I don't know. You get mad or offended with passages of Scripture about Jesus taking complete control of your life. And to put it in terms of of our setting here, if I preach about that, maybe you say, well, I'm not so sure about that guy. He's a little extreme. Certain areas are off limits to Jesus. You protect your interests more than you surrender them to, to the Lord. You would choose your stuff over the Lord and His calling on your life. You view yourself as the owner instead of the manager of the things you have. Your ambitions, your strength, are centered on you and yours rather than on thee and thine. You're a manipulator of people, emotions, circumstances. You believe your future lies in your own hands, not in the Lord. So if it's to be, it's up to me. (laughs) You've never experienced any measure of discomfort or hardship because you're a Christian. Never turned down a business deal. Never said no to an invitation. Never turned down a date. Never been misunderstood. Never had a disagreement with the world because of your commitment to Christ. You love the world and the things of the world. More concerned for personal achievement than for godly character. That's my list to myself this week as I just rattled off things that I thought, you know what, boy, man, Lord, turn me around. Herod's activity in all of this is an awesome reminder of how, how deep opposition to Jesus can be and how rooted it can be in our hearts and how we need the Holy Spirit to extract it from us. And if we're determined to get our way in our lives at any cost, we will pay an incredible price. Herod shows us that it's possible to believe in Jesus and yet hate him because he's a threat 
and he must be king, but he's not the only person in the story. It's also possible because biblical knowledge without obedience is useless. I can understand Herod. I can understand a guy who's king and a very secular person and someone who's only concerned about himself. I can understand him. People that I can't understand are the experts in Scripture. (laughs) The scribes and the chief priests who when Herod says, where is the Messiah to be born? They don't say, well, it's kind of fuzzy in Scripture. You know, there's a lot of different interpretations of this. I'm not real sure. What do they tell him? Very quickly, in Bethlehem. And not only in Bethlehem, but they back it up with Scripture. And yet, what do they do? Nothing. Maybe your version is different, but I can't see where they do anything different than Herod does. They don't run to worship their promised Messiah, who's just fulfilled Scripture in front of their eyes. They, they don't do any of that. Their biblical knowledge was not partnered with obedience, and so as a result, it was useless. It's my conviction, quite honestly, that many Christians, or at least those who claim to be Christians, are probably the same way. And we've all been there, myself included. When maybe we don't know the Bible, it's right here written for us, and we have access to God's Word and His heart, and we don't know it. Or if we do know it, we don't totally know what it means. Or if we do know what, what it says and what it means, we don't do it. Biblical knowledge without obedience is useless. You may find someone who is so sharp, knows the Bible front and back, but if there's no fruit in their life, don't pay an ounce of attention to them whatsoever. They don't get it. They might understand the scripture, but just like these scribes and just like these chief priests, it's just a bunch of facts. It's just head knowledge that's never reached their heart and changed their lives. Biblical knowledge without obedience is useless. And likewise, religious activity does not always indicate spiritual significance or depth. Religious activity does not always indicate spiritual significance or depth. These guys not only knew the Bible, they were active in doing religious things. They're scribes, they're chief priests. They're ones who kept record of things and ministered to other people. They were constantly busy about what they thought were the things of God. And yet what this story shows us is so amazing. That those who came from the East, wise men who really didn't fully know the Scripture, didn't fully know its implications... They had more spiritual significance and depth than those who were busy about religion and who knew the Bible. Isn't that something? For all their activity, the scribes and the priests failed to gain spiritual significance and depth because their focus was on their activity and not on the Savior. There's some recent studies, and I want to highlight just a couple of things from them that have come out. George Barna is a Christian researcher. You may have heard of him before, but he's come out with some studies that say that this is a problem for us too. This is not just a a Jewish pharisaical problem. This is a problem for us. 2009, he comes out with a study that says only 9% of all American adults, adults, not children, adults, have a biblical worldview, which means that they believe in absolute moral truth, 
that the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches, that Satan is a real being, not a merely a symbol, that a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or doing good works, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the world who rules the universe today. Only 9% of American adults have that view. And yet the overwhelming majority of Americans would claim that they're a Christian. Among born-again Christians, those who would say, yes, I've had the Holy Spirit come into my life and I have been totally born again. I believe in, in Jesus. Only 19% have that view. A 2010 study said that 7% of adults that they surveyed only 7% could say that they could think of any religious belief, practice, or preference that had been altered in the last five years for them. They say, what does that mean? That means that essentially only 7% of all the adults surveyed have an ongoing faith that changes them day to day. 2011 study, 81% of self-identified Christian adults say that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's still important in their lives today. But only 18% claim to be totally committed to investing in their own spiritual development. Only 3% of all self-identified Christians in America have come to what Barna calls the final stops in the transformational journey with the Lord. The places where they have surrendered control of their life to God, submitted to His will for their life, and devoted themselves to loving and serving God and other people. Only 3% of all Christians not hard to see that we can easily be like those scribes we can easily be like those chief priests who knew a lot who did a lot but it was not connected to the savior and it meant nothing now there's some positive examples and i want to close with these we see the magi the wise men we see joseph and they show us that truly believing in and loving jesus requires our worship our submission our sacrifice and our obedience. The Magi show up at the house where Joseph and Mary are staying. And immediately it says they worship him. Their belief in Jesus didn't stop with head knowledge. They carried it to the next step. To where it really mattered and they worshipped him. Their focus is not on how far they've traveled. Though some estimate it was up to 900 miles that they traveled to follow this star, to find the king of the Jews, to worship him. They didn't talk about that. They simply worshiped the Lord Jesus. Their worship is symbolized in their bowing before Jesus, in submission to him. These men of great wealth, great prestige, bow before a little baby. Get that in your mind. Get away from the manger scene, and I get it in your mind. These men who had everything bow before a little baby. They submitted. Truth is that worship and devotion to Jesus are not truly real unless we do the same. Unless we bow, both in our hearts and certainly sometimes physically, bow before the Lord in submission in every part of our life to be submitted to Him. They worshipped Him, they submitted to Him, and they sacrificed. They give gifts to Him worthy of a king. Lots of symbolism with the gifts and so on. Just recognize that together they formed what would be worthy for a king to receive. 
And it cost them something to follow Jesus that day. And then we see their obedience. An angel appears to them, and they have to make a choice. Are we going to follow this king of the Jews named King Herod? Or are we going to follow what we've now learned about this baby and the angel that's shown up to us? Are we going to be obedient to God? So they disobey the ruling authority in the land, and they're obedient to God. <laughs> Joseph is another guy that shows us incredible obedience. By this point, Joseph's life is wrapped up in Jesus. He's just, Jesus is, is his everything. And we see here that in verses 13 to 15 of Matthew 2, he's warned, and so he leaves, flees to Egypt. In verse 19, he's told of Herod's death, so he comes back to Israel. Verses 22 and 23, he's warned again, and so he flees to Nazareth. Just obedience over and over and over and over again. It's easy to think that you've got to be famous, you've got to be rich, you've got to be these things, one thing or another. But you know what God really wants from us is just for us to say, okay, I'll do it your way. Joseph's life wrapped up in Jesus. Never became rich because of it. Never became really famous other than our knowledge of him in the scripture. Just obeyed the Lord. Wasn't easy, but he obeyed anyway. Wasn't convenient, but he obeyed anyway. Took him likely where he didn't want to go, but he obeyed anyway. The coming of Jesus, as we see in, in Matthew 2 and, and throughout the New Testament, constantly divides people. We see it at his birth, that at the very start of his life, there are two camps forming. You've got one that worships him and one that hates him. One tries to eliminate him, the other wants to bow before him. And I would imagine that you and I are most like, or at least close to being like, one of the characters we see represented. Maybe you are convicted this morning that maybe you're a little bit like Herod. You see Jesus for who he is particularly this time of year, but he's a threat. And you're going to stop really at nothing to eliminate that threat from your life. So you manipulate and you play games and you pretend and so on. You pretend as if you believe in him, but he's really not in charge. Herod was more interested in saving his own power and control than he was in saving his soul. Maybe you look at yourself and you're a little bit like the scribes and the priests. Maybe you know the scripture. But maybe you've replaced love for Jesus with just biblical knowledge and religious activity, and you need to get back to what it's really all about. The answer in both of those cases, if you find yourself this morning convicted by the Holy Spirit that you are like Herod or you are like the scribes and the priests, the answer is not more good stuff. The answer is not to go buy someone something. The answer is repentance. The answer is true belief in Jesus, turning from that life, turning toward Jesus and allowing Him to make you who He wants you to be. Maybe you find yourself like the wise men, and this morning you're just seeking more of Jesus. You're worshiping Him, submitting to Him, sacrificing, being obedient. The challenge for you is to keep going. The challenge for you is to add knowledge to your devotion. Know the Bible so that when it matches your devotion, you're exactly where God wants you to be. Or maybe you're like Joseph, and this morning you just recognize, you know what, I know I'm not perfect, but my life is wrapped up in Jesus. The challenge for you is not to grow weary, the Bible says in Galatians, in doing good, in doing what you know you need to do 
to remember His faithfulness and His grace. There's one last thing to remember. God, in spite of all of Herod's attempts to prove otherwise, God is in control. You realize that at every turn when Herod attempts something to maintain control, to thwart the plans of God, that Matthew writes in, oh, by the way, this was done in order that the prophecy through this guy would be fulfilled. Don't miss that part. Because at every turn, no matter what Herod tried to do, God, he found, was still in control. And God had plans and purposes bigger than Herod could have ever imagined. And let me tell you something else that Herod realizes now and will one day experience. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing and he's talking about the example of Jesus Christ, his humility and so on. He says in verse 5, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, above the name of King Herod, above all of our names. So that at the name of Jesus, here's what Herod finds out. Every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, you and I will bow. We can do it in celebration or in terror. You get one shot here on earth to make that decision. Will you respond to Jesus today in making him giving him his rightful place as king in your life. One day you'll have to whether you want to or not. I pray that on that day when we all bow before the Lord, as the Philippians passage says, that we'll be able to do it with joy, knowing that it is the culmination of the kingship of Jesus in our life, not the horrified recognition of who he really is and has been the whole time. I encourage you this morning to repent, to bow before the Lord, receive Him as King in your life, or recognize the areas in which He is not King and submit those, and leave here today not pretending to like Jesus, but loving Him with your whole heart, not just because it's Christmas, but because He is King all the time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. Lord Jesus, in our church, in our lives, we give you your rightful place. Not second or third or fourth, but on the throne. So Lord, we repent of the sin in our lives that keeps us from recognizing you as king. We repent of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our control we turn toward you. Lord, we repent of our lack of obedience and our simple religious activity with no focus on you, and we, we turn toward you. 
Lord, help us to be like those wise men that sought after you and wanted to know more of you and bowed before you in worship. And Lord, make us like Joseph, whose life was wrapped up in Jesus. And Lord, as we read in Philippians, may that day where we bow before you be one of joy because we received your salvation in this life and we'll celebrate it in the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.